the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Supreme Court freezes the expiration of Title 42. They see it as a kind of natural disaster that they need to spend money on and have FEMA deal with. The Kevin Only campaign looks to bolster McCarthy's effort for speaker. He will go and take to this floor, he says, because he has to. His career is over if he loses his vote. Stocks fall for a fourth straight day. Things are still getting more expensive, and the credit card bills and interest rates are still getting more expensive. This is the Daybreak Insider Podcast, your first look at today's top stories for Tuesday, December 20th. I'm Mike Scott. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts temporarily blocked an order that would lift Title 42, a Trump-era health measure that has been used to deter more than 2.5 million immigrants from coming across the southern border and illegally entering into the United States. In a one-page order, Chief Justice Roberts granted a stay pending further orders and ask governments to respond by 5 p.m. Tuesday. That is just hours before the restrictions are slated to expire on Wednesday. Leland Vittert of News Nation says that the temporary block saved the Biden administration from a political and humanitarian disaster. The White House might have gotten a Christmas reprieve, an early present, you might say, from the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. There was an upcoming political disaster. However, the end of Title 42 at the border is now on hold. In other words, the expected 15,000 illegal immigrants coming across the border when Title 42 ended later this week will just be a trickle, a mere six to 8,000 people a day. A quick reminder, Title 42 is the Trump era policy allowing Border Patrol to expel about half of the illegal immigrants that come across because of the COVID emergency. Even with Title 42, illegal immigrants now fill Border Patrol facilities to four or five times their capacity. Vitter says that the media is being hypocritical in their coverage of the border crisis between the Trump administration all the way to the Biden administration. According to the White House, if you talk about what's happening at the southern border, you talk about all the people flowing across, all the people being allowed into the United States, all the drugs coming across. If you talk about any of those things that are seen on videotape, you are spreading misinformation. These pictures that we are now seeing, this is from a congressman shooting inside one of the Border Patrol facilities, El Paso, Texas, on Saturday. They look an awful lot like the ones we saw in 2019, families packed into tight spaces while they wait to seek asylum. Back then, you might remember, every news outlet covered the story every hour on the hour. Kids were in cages. Lately, you haven't heard much about the border, despite the fact that the pictures look exactly the same. Vittert emphasized just how many illegal migrants will pour across the border. 
Right now, Customs and Border Protection agents say 7,500 people a day cross into the country. That's 98,000 roughly every two weeks. If you're wondering, that's the size of the University of Alabama's football stadium entering the country every two weeks. Those are the people we know about. Of course, there are the gotaways, thousands per day that we don't know about. Many of the people who come across turn themselves into Border Patrol and then are released, end up on the streets of El Paso and other border towns. Right now, it is below freezing in those towns as the sun sets. Mark Kerkorian of the Center for Immigration Studies joined Fox News and says that the Biden administration sees the crisis at the southern border differently than everyone else. They see the problem not as a huge number of unauthorized people coming into the United States. They see the problem as lots of people, you know, uh, uh, gathering and sleeping on the streets and they're being, you know, overwhelming these local communities. So their solution is to spend more money to get these people into the United States faster mm. rather than to somehow deter people from coming across the border. So the question is, what's the problem? They see the problem totally differently from what everybody else sees the problem as. Kerkorian says, in his opinion, the Biden administration does not see the border crisis as a result of their policies and instead believe the migrants have a right to be in the United States. They see it as a kind of natural disaster that they need to spend money on and have FEMA deal with. Literally, they're having FEMA deal with some of this, as opposed to, as you said at the beginning, this is a disaster that their policies created. The problem is they don't think that the American people have the right to keep people out. They think these people have a right to enter the United States. And so the only question is, how is it done more expeditiously? How is it done in ways that will be less inconvenient for the people living in El Paso and what have you? Not how do we stop this? In fact, uh, earlier this year, um, Brett Baer asked Secretary Mayorkas, is the administration's policy to somehow reduce dramatically the number of people coming across the border? Yeah. And Mayorkas would not say yes. He said their policy is to move people through quickly and make sure everybody gets a bite at the apple in court and what have you. Kerkorian says that even though Republicans will gain control of the House soon, there's not much they can do beyond using the power of the purse. I mean, there's a limit to what the House can do when Republicans are in charge, but they have to at least have the chance to do it. This is why an omnibus bill that will lock them in until September is a terrible mistake. Conservative-leaning states have argued that lifting Title 42 will lead to a surge of migrants into their states and take a toll on state government services like health care or law enforcement. They also say the federal government has no plan to deal with an increase in migrants. On Monday, the House January 6th committee, led by Democrats, held its final hearing and urged the Justice Department to bring criminal charges against former President Donald Trump for the violence that took place at the U.S. Capitol. Mr. Chairman, I move that the committee favorably report to the House the Select Committee's final report, which includes the committee's legislative recommendations and criminal referrals of Donald J. Trump and others, pursuant to Section 4A of House Resolution 503.
Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero noes. The motion is agreed to. The committee alleges that Donald Trump violated four criminal statutes, including aiding an insurrection. Trump was not the only person the committee recommended for charges. Lawyer John Eastman, who took many complaints of voter fraud in the 2020 election to court, was also referred for prosecution for conspiracy to defraud the United States and obstructing an official proceeding. Jonathan Turley is a professor in the law school at George Washington University and joined Fox News to say the committee didn't do their job of proving criminality and the Justice Department may simply reject the referral. First of all, it obviously has no binding effect, but the risk is the Department of Justice could ultimately just reject this and uh, really contradict the claims of many that the criminal conduct here is obvious. It's not obvious. Uh, that this committee again promised that there would be new evidence being displayed today. Uh, there was a couple videos that we had not seen before, but there was no direct new evidence of a criminal act uh, by the former president. That's not to say that his conduct wasn't reckless or reprehensible, but that's not a criminal act. Turley points out that, in his opinion, based on the evidence shown, even if taken to trial, prosecutors would have a hard time convicting Donald Trump. And it was basically a rehashing of what we have seen in virtually every one of these hearings. And they simply attached these referrals to it. So the Department of Justice could reject this referral and take it nowhere. Uh, they could also take it to trial and, and look for a favorable uh, jury in places like D.C. The problem is I don't think these convictions on this evidence uh, would likely be uh, um, uh, would likely withstand judicial scrutiny. Turley went on to say he believes that Trump's speech on January 6th was protected and therefore would be hard to convict him on. The biggest problem are those counts that turn on the president's speech. That speech, in my view, was protected under existing Supreme Court cases like Brandenburg. Uh, it would not meet the standard the Supreme Court has set out for the criminalization of speech. That's my view. But I expect that as even if they were to eke out a conviction, they'd have a pretty hard time on appeal. Criminal referral is mostly symbolic, with the Justice Department ultimately deciding whether or not to prosecute Donald Trump or others. Presumptive House Majority Speaker Kevin McCarthy unveiled a new aggressive tactic to assist in his bid for speakership. A campaign of House members who are proudly proclaiming only Kevin. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is having a hard time securing the 218 votes he needs to become Speaker of the House. He can only lose four Republican votes to have any shot at claiming the gavel, and yet five Republicans from the ultra-conservative Freedom Caucus, informally known as the Never Kevins, have vowed to vote as a faction against McCarthy. With less than three weeks until that deciding vote, McCarthy is showing signs of desperation. Just this week, he took the unusual step of pushing committee leadership races until after the speaker election on January 3rd. McCarthy's travails could lead the House to have its first multi-ballot speaker election since 1923. McCarthy's battle for the speakership was triggered after the midterm elections. 
with the Republicans gaining a slim majority. That gave the five Republican members rebelling against McCarthy's bid for leadership some leverage. McCarthy has found some help with support from Representative Jim Banks of Indiana, who is seen as a bridge between Republicans who support McCarthy and those who do not. John Bresnahan, co-founder of Punchbowl News, says McCarthy's bid for speakership is seeing some large hurdles. He's got a problem. He's right now. He could not get there. Uh, As you mentioned, there's five votes publicly against him. Now, he's working on all these guys. Some of them he's not going to get. Andy Biggs of Arizona. He's going to challenge McCarthy. He's running for speaker against McCarthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, He ran against him in they have the House Republican Conference. He ran against him internally. Now he's running against him publicly on the floor. Uh, There's a couple more. Bob Good of Virginia, Matt Gates of Florida. They're never going to vote for McCarthy, no matter what. But McCarthy hopes to... There's a couple on that list that he hopes to get. Matt Rosendale, uh, he, you know, he'll work on. Ralph Norman, he'll work on. So he's trying to get them. He's working all these conservatives all the time. He's on the phone constantly with mm-hmm. these guys, talking to them, trying to get an idea of what do they want. Bresnahan explains that becoming House Speaker is not about popularity. You have to remember, a leadership election is not a popularity contest. Members vote for somebody for a leader or for a speaker because it helps them. How it helps them hmm. is, a, is a test. Does it help me with my re-election? Does it help me with fundraising? Does it help me with committees? There's all sorts of different levels, but it's not a popularity contest. So there's only a limited value from the outside pressure. But McCarthy's got this whole inside-outside game going. He's got folks calling from the outside, from their districts, donors, and on the inside, he's working it. His allies inside the conference are working it. So he's got he's, he's going to really ramp up the pressure over the next two weeks. The co-creator of Punchbowl News predicts that the speakership for the House will be up in the air for McCarthy until the House votes for speaker on January 6th. But I will say, I don't think this gets resolved until, I mean, the vote is January 3rd, the speaker vote. The House comes in, they have a quorum, and then the next vote is a speaker, openly on the floor. A roll call vote for speaker. Everybody stands up and votes. And I don't think it may be resolved until that day or the day before. It could, be, it could go right up to the wire. Bresnahan explains what the motion to vacate means and why some Republicans in McCarthy's caucus are now pushing for it. Motion to vacate is a procedure in the House where any member can stand up at any time. They can submit a motion and say, I want to have a vote on vacating the chair, the speaker's chair. Mm -hmm. Now, this is what eventually how conservatives tanked John Boehner back in 2013. Uh, I'm sorry, 2015. And then McCarthy at that time tried to become speaker. He couldn't. And Paul Ryan became speaker again. But. What happened is when Pelosi took over the House and the Democrats took over the House after the 2018 election, they changed the motion to vacate. So only the party leadership could do it. Only the majority or minority leader in this case could Mm -hmm. do it. And what these conservatives want to do is go back and say, no, we want any member to be able to do it. Bresnahan says that while McCarthy is negotiating with Republicans on the motion to vacate may show some weakness, it also shows how high the stakes are for McCarthy. That is a sort of Damocles over McCarthy's head. If he gives in on that, that means any time he, he pisses these guys off, he, you know, he puts a bill on the floor that they don't like, they can go and try and tank him. Now, that is, it's, it's, 
they're looking, he's looking for some kind of way to give maybe not one member, maybe if you have 20 or 30 members, he's trying to do some hybrid on it. He's trying to negotiate with them. But if he gives them that, that, and he may have to, um, it is a sign of weakness, but it'll show how, you know, how much it, the stakes of this. And, you know, this is his whole career here. McCarthy has mm-hmm. nothing else here. He will go and take to this floor, he says, because he has to. His career is over if he loses his vote. He, he you know, I don't, don't see how he stays in Congress. A group of only Kevins donned OK buttons last week as a sign of solidarity. They're trying to apply as much pressure as they can to make sure that McCarthy ekes it out. Elon Musk polls Twitter users about whether he should stay as head of the social media empire or go, and they vote to send him packing. Daybreak Insider's Julie Walker has more on the latest from the social media platform. It was a simple tweet sent Sunday by Elon Musk. Should I step down as head of Twitter? I will abide by the results of this poll. More than half of 17.5 million users who responded to the poll voted yes by the time it closed Monday morning. Before the tweet, the billionaire acknowledged he made a mistake in launching new speech restrictions that banned mentions of rival social media websites. But there was so much criticism, Musk promised not to make any more major policy changes without a survey. The last tweet he sent Sunday Those who want power are the ones who least deserve it. I'm Julie Walker. Fears of the Federal Reserve pushing the economy into a recession stung the stock market for the fourth consecutive day. The Dow shed 162 points. The S&P fell 0.9% and the Nasdaq Composite shed 1.49%. Last week, the central bank raised interest rates by another half percentage point and signaled that rates would remain high for some time. Francis Stacy, the director of strategy at Optimal Capital, says that a combination between interest rates and inflation remaining high is squeezing middle income families. The markets are being driven by the fact that this is now the fifth down day, and it's basically a reiteration from the Fed um, that they're going to remain tight. They're going to continue to raise interest rates. They're looking for the federal funds rate to go up to 5.1% by the end of next year. And what this means is that people who have interest rate sensitive situations, you know, variable interest rates on their credit cards, variable interest rates on other loans that they have, it's going to continue to get more and more onerous to service that debt. Inflation peaked in June, but it's still going up at 7.1%. So things are still getting more expensive, and the credit card bills and interest rates are still getting more expensive. So the 61% of the population that's living paycheck to paycheck, it's getting harder and harder and harder for them to make ends meet. And the Fed is saying that they're going to continue to march the balance sheet down and also continue to raise rates. And so the stock market being an overall, you know, amount of liquidity in the economy as that liquidity is being reduced is going lower. The European Union argues Meta has broken antitrust rules, saying Facebook's classified ad business distorts competition. Daybreak insider Charles de Ledesma has more on this European story. 
In its complaint, following a probe launched last year, the EU's Executive Commission has taken issue with the tech company tying its online classified ad business, Facebook Marketplace, to Facebook. The Commission says Facebook users automatically have access to Marketplace, whether they want it or not. Raising concerns, the competitors are shut out because the tie gives Marketplace an advantage that they can't match. Meta disputes the allegations, saying the company will study the complaints and is fully cooperating with the Commission's investigation. Charles Dilladesma, London. And finally, Ida Zuge and her older sister couldn't have wished for a better Christmas gift this year than to be reunited with a stranger on an airplane whose kindness changed their lives forever after 23 years apart. Back in the 1990s, the civil war in Yugoslavia sent Zuge and her sister on a plane back to the United States. It was on that plane where American Tracy Pack of Minnesota befriended the two refugee children and gifted them with an envelope of $100. It was an act of kindness that would stay with the sisters for their entire lives. Civil war was raging in Yugoslavia. Bombs closing in on her family. So Ida's parents put their 11-year-old daughter and her sister on a plane to the U.S. by themselves. Ida vividly remembers the fear, but remembers just as well the comforting stranger seated next to her, an American. I remember how kind she was to us, you know, treating us like her family. So it was a bit of a shock, to be honest. Especially when she handed you the envelope? Yeah, I couldn't believe that somebody had so much empathy. The outside of the envelope read in part, I hope your stay in America will be a safe and happy one. Signed, A friend from the plane, Tracy. And when Ida opened it, she found a $100 bill inside. Ida and her sister moved in with a relative who didn't have too much more than they did. So that $100 bill fed the family for three months. And Ida says it continues to feed her soul to this very day. For years, Zuge searched for the woman who showed her such generosity. That's why I actually kept Tracy's letter, because uh, it's a reminder to me that people are good. Zuge says that Peck's kindness changed her life forever in such a way that she is always looking for ways to pay it forward. The reason why I do what I do is because of Tracy. Every decision that I made had to do with paying it forward. Now, after years of searching and sharing her story with millions... Zuge and her sister have been reunited with the woman who touched their lives so many years ago last weekend. We just stood there and hugged and cried, and I just felt such a deep love for them. I can't wait to come to your wedding. For her part, Peck had no idea how much that gesture would come to mean to its recipients, nor how much it would change her life, too. They've taught me the slightest thing that you can do for someone. You don't realize what impact that's going to have on their life. We have no idea. Zuge and Peck's story has been shared by millions and continues to impact others. Zuge says that since she began her search for Peck, she has received over 2,300 emails 
from other people, moved by their connection. One person wrote to tell Zuge that they were close to suicide, but reconsidered after hearing their story. The email read, in part, Something woke up in me that was quiet for so long. Instead of ending my life that day, I walked around the city feeling gratitude for people like Tracy in my life. Subscribe to the Daybreak Insider Podcast at Apple or Google Podcast, Spotify, or SalemPodcastNetwork.com. Get our companion Daybreak Insider newsletter each morning at DaybreakInsider.com. Ongoing coverage of breaking news and commentary at srnnews.com and townhall.com. Thanks for starting your day with us. I'm Mike Scott. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.